Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. That is the beauty of Italy and so many parts of Europe is that, you know, in a world that's ever-changing, in a perception that's ever-changing, sometimes changing, you know, too quickly for our preferences, you know, Europe's really figured out how to preserve for austerity. And there are a lot of people living their lives, you know, who are just kind of sort of feeling depressed or, you know, who are staying in relationships that make them unhappy. It doesn't threaten them at the level that my dissatisfaction threatened me through my addiction and, and I had a way out. Every experience we have and, and every moment life is working in infinitely intelligent, sophisticated ways for our greatest growth, our greatest prosperity, and our greatest evolution. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is David Bayer. All right, so I wanted to have David on the show because he really is an expert in mindset and business strategy. And if you don't believe me, Success Magazine called him the leading expert on the next evolution in mindset. And I have to say, I completely agree. And here's why. He has a very different approach to personal development. He deftly navigates that line between hustle, fulfillment, and spirituality. He's kind of like the only guy I've ever seen who does it in this way. So David knows his stuff. This episode taught me how to step back and realize that things are aligning for me exactly the way that they're supposed to. And not how I think they're supposed to, but how they're actually supposed to. And he'll explain it much better than I am right now. We also dug into what it was like living in Italy and how he branded the motorcycle Ducati. He worked for Ducati while he was living in Italy. And we talked all things Italy and why Italy had such an impact on him. And we shared a lot of bonds uh, around that as well. So I really think you're going to love this episode. Before we get into the episode, we are getting ready to take our next Work Hard, Play Hard trip, and it is to Marrakesh in Morocco, October 14th to the 18th. If you want to know more, go fill out an application at workhardplayhardexperience.com. All right, let's jump right into this conversation with David Bayer. David, welcome to the show. Rob, thanks for having me. You know what, man? I am super excited to have you on the show. I have heard so many incredible things about you and how you've taken so much of the confusion out of personal growth and you, know, you brought some spirituality into it and you're helping a lot of people. Your name keeps coming up. So I knew I had to have you on the show. So thanks for doing it. Well, I appreciate it. It's an, it's an honor. I've, I've gotten the opportunity to listen to a number of your interviews to make sure I'm not caught off guard with anything. <laughs> I, learned that, <laughs> I learned that lesson the hard way a while ago and, uh, and I love the show and it's, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So just for some background, let's rewind the clock a little bit to growing up in Laguna Hills. You remember that? I do, yeah. So when I think of Laguna Hills, the only reference point I have is the television show. You know, if you watch the TV show, how closely related to what I saw on TV was your life? Well, I mean, I think there's, a, there's an element of Orange County that is represented in that show when, 
when I moved to Laguna Hills, I was seven years old and we moved into a community that was in the process of being developed. We, we, we had come down from Long Beach County and, uh, it was, it was dirt all the way from, uh, the, the 405 freeway to Laguna Beach. There wasn't anything. There was no Laguna Niguel. The city of Irvine didn't exist. And so it was, it was a very different place back then. It was a lot of young families who had, you know, moved into what I think they considered to be stretch homes. My parents bought our 4,000 square foot home back in, you know, 1983 for, you know, $300,000. And my dad thought it was going to break him. And, um, and then Orange County evolved, you know, over time to just be a lot of what you, you know, you see in the programming. And it's been years since I've been there. I mean, I've been gone for almost 20 years, but it was an, it was a good place to grow up. I mean, that's one of the things I told my, uh, my wife when she asked me, you know, what was it like growing up in Orange County? I'm like, it's, it's a great place if you don't have any particular interest in doing much, but, you know, raising a family <laughs> or, you know, you've got the posh lifestyle of kind of having a home in Newport Beach or something like that. It's, it's an unremarkable place, but it's nice. Yeah, for sure. And what, uh, what part of the country are you living in now? Now I'm in, uh, well, right now I'm in Sarasota, Florida. We have a home in Sarasota. Normally I'm in Orlando and I've been mm-hmm. there for about 20 years. I never thought I would be in Orlando, Florida for, for 20 years because I went from, from Mission Viejo High School in Southern California to Columbia University in New York. And that was a culture shock. And, uh, and then I was in New York for seven years. I started my first business uh, right my first year out of college. It was an e-commerce site that sold things to college kids for their dorm rooms like posters, beanbags, lava lamps, inflatable furniture, cardboard cutouts of Austin Powers... Mm-hmm. And um, and I and I worked that business for a couple of years. This was back in like 1998, 1999. And I and I played a card game called Magic: The Gathering, uh, which is like a collectible card game for for nerds because that's what I am. And uh, and I I ended up playing in a tournament against the general manager of Ducati North America, the Italian motorcycle brand. And he and I developed a friendship. And at one point he said, Hey, you know, this business you have is nice, but you know, you need more money. And maybe me and the CEO can put in a little bit of money and help you take it to the next level. And, you know, they offered to put a couple hundred thousand dollars into my little e-commerce site and it wasn't enough. And he said, why don't you come over to Italy and help us out start up Ducati.com? So I went from New York to Italy uh, and I spent three years living in Italy uh, we developed the internet strategy for Ducati motorcycles. We sold the first motorcycle on the internet. Um, it was an amazing experience. And then um, I moved back and lived with my mom for a couple of years in my early mid-20s in Orange County again. And a friend of mine introduced me to a dude who owned an ad agency in Orlando. And they had me come out and visit. And they took me out for... what I didn't even know what existed. It was called Three for Ones at Happy Hour at this bar called Antigua. And that should have been an early sign that I was heading down a slippery slope of drug and alcohol addiction. But, uh, and so I've been in Orlando for the last uh, 20 years. And I think we're ready, we're ready to move. Orlando's nice. I tell people it's like a Starbucks. You always know what you're going to get when you come home. Um, but uh, yeah, Orlando's been great to me. We, we travel so much that you know, we're only here a third of the time. Yeah, it's interesting. You, know, you and I both share a love for, uh, for Italy. I... Um... I just recently got back from four months living in Florence as a bucket list trip. And uh, it was unbelievable, you know? Yeah, oh, that just, is unbelievable. What an opportunity. Yeah, it was great. We just decided that uh, I live now in Los Angeles in Hermosa Beach. And uh, I just always, my wife and I always wanted to, you know, we had a, we have a vision of, of uh, buying a villa in somewhere in, in uh, Tuscany, like Chianti or Montepulcino or something like that. And uh, so we said, well, let's go see how we like living there. And we were there just before um, uh, COVID started. So we got mm-hmm. out of there in time. But it was, it was absolutely incredible. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, Ducati. You mentioned that you work for Ducati. How does working for an Italian brand, which prizes form and function, differ from working for an American brand? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a, it's, that's a great question and it's, it's helpful to reflect, reflect upon, to be honest, you know, at, at that time in my early twenties, when I left New York, I, I thought I had found the love of my life. We ended up breaking up, uh, after being together for three years and, um, and I've already alluded to some of my you know background in, in drug and alcohol recovery. And like, I it really picked up steam when I moved to Italy. 
um, because of the isolation. I didn't have a lot of friends and some of the friction uh, that I experienced working with in an Italian atmosphere. Now, that said, it's not like I had a, a, a huge resume of work history to build upon, you know, at 22, 23 years old, that I really knew anything about business, American or Italian. But it, Italians really embrace their way of life. They don't sacrifice uh, structure or productivity for lifestyle. And so for someone who, you know, my attitude was, I just came over there to do a job. Uh, and I wanted to create huge success. I was very success driven and you know, really wanted to, you know, create a billion dollar online brand with Ducati. It became frustrating from time to time, whether it was my coworkers or with management, um, that the ideas that they were open to really had to sort of be in alignment with, you know, when we were taking smoking breaks. So it's, <laughs> and it, it's, breaks. Diff- yeah. it's different, right? And, and also to be an entrepreneur. Which is what I, you know, what I am and was at heart, uh, and to we, I was literally le- working out of the Ducati factory. They built a wing of the factory where I think when I got there, they had two computers. Um, they bought twenty more for the employees that were going to be part of Ducati.com. They could only hire people who spoke English because I didn't speak any Italian at that time, and I was a real core driver for for that business unit. But it was re- it was it wasn't just taking a step back in time culturally. It was taking a step back in time. Um, you know, just in the way technology was functioning because it was Italy, right? I mean, they were 10 years behind where we were at that time in the United States. Yeah, it still is. I, we got married, my wife and I got married in Positano 15 years ago. And uh, there was a computer in, we went to the, you know, the town hall place to register and there was a computer there. And the guy pulls out this big book to write our names in the book. It looked like a Snow White book with dust on it, you know? And I said, do you use the computer? He said, no, I don't trust it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, ha- I had to go. I had to go register with the local community at one point in time, and I remember going and registering. And they, you know, they they had one of those partitions where you had the, you know, the the, the, the city worker who was behind the partition, and I, I was on the other side. I had been waiting in line, and they had me fill out some paperwork, and I slid it back underneath the partition, and I looked as she turned around, and she spent ten minutes you know, scanning this massive bookshelf and paper inventory that was behind her to figure out where to put my file. And, you know, and this was 2002, 2003. Granted, we didn't have the iPhone, but we certainly had computers. We had the internet. And it's just a different way of living, which I really enjoy too. Two years ago, I got to go back to Bologna. I stayed with a really good friend of mine uh, who was a new friend at the time, Garrett Gunderson, who um, just invited me to come stay at a villa that he had rented and actually took Carol back to my favorite restaurant uh, in Bologna, and nothing had changed, and that that is the beauty of Italy and so many parts of Europe is that you know in a world that's ever changing in a perception that's ever changing and sometimes changing you know too quickly for our preferences, you know Europe's really figured out how to preserve for austerity. Well, you learned language obviously while you were there because you were there for so long. Are you still as fluent in Italian as you were? No, and one of the challenges is I've you know I've I've been with a Colombian woman for almost eight years now who who went from my girlfriend to my, my fiance to my wife, and so now I've got this weird Spanish Italian thing going on where I'll I'll try to speak to Abuelita, her grandmother, and I'll try to pull out a word, and she gives me this confused look on her face. There was one time we were at the MoMA in New York a few years ago, and some Italians got in the elevator, and they were having. A personal conversation that I could pick up on, and in my broken Italian, I was able to send the, say to them, "Be careful! You never know who speaks Italian." Um, but it, you know, for me, I, I lost it pretty quickly. I think you know, being there for two to three years isn't quite enough indoctrination to have it stick unless you continue to use it. But just a beautiful language. It sure is. You know, I want to uh, I want to talk a little bit about. You mentioned addiction, but there's there's a part of your story that's really interesting to me. As you were progressing through a few jobs, you found yourself comparing yourself to other people, which I do. A lot of other people do as well. And you were worried about your finances, and you know, feeling like things just weren't coming fast enough for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that portion of your story? I was a, a highly intelligent kid. And I, I think it's probably why I didn't have a lot of friends. A lot of things didn't make sense to me. But I was really driven by creating success. My dad uh, was a successful attorney. In my family, you, you got connection and love and reward through you know getting good grades or um, receiving praises from other people. Now, my brother, who's also in the personal development space, went in a completely different direction and became the rebel. 
And so, you know, as I came back from Italy and moved to Orlando and um, started a business early on in the, in the search engine optimization space in around 2005, 2006, I was all I was driven by this idea that I should have been one of those people that built a hundred million dollar dot com company and sold it. I don't know where I got that idea along the way. It was probably from well-meaning people who were who were complimenting my capabilities and my acumen, uh, but anything short of that, and I was a failure. And so, during the experience of of, of wanting to build something like that for no real what I would call like spiritual vision reason, but just so that I could feel good about who I was. Um, anytime life would show up in a way that seemed like it wasn't in alignment with that plan, I was very reactive to it. Whether it was team members or whether it was a Google algorithm change, constantly beating myself up, constantly beating other people up. I don't know what, what the experiences were of the people around me at that time, like 15 years ago, but... Uh, I, I'm certainly not happy about you know who I was, and um, and the way that I treated people, and and all of it came out of my own dissatisfaction with who I was. But you know, Rob, it's really it it it's at those times in our lives, and I think we so many of us can look back to periods of our lives where we were showing up not as our best selves, and it's oftentimes hard to to blame ourselves or hold ourselves culpable for that because like I didn't know another way. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about personal development. I didn't know anything about self-awareness. I was not raised in a religious family. There was no concept of faith. No one ever taught me compassion or how to be present or or any of these like noble concepts that we value. And and that's why I think we see so many people who are either operating primarily to get away from uh, financial insecurity or living in scarcity or chasing some form of success. And all of that has been exacerbated exponentially as a result of our um, connection through social media, where you know we've got all of these you know, fake filters into people's lives that aren't even real. Uh, and that just feeds you know, the not good enough monster even more. So I, I, I can't say I experienced that you know, more than most people, what I can say is I connected that to really destructive behaviors, which I'm grateful for, because uh, because the behaviors were so destructive, I had to do something about it. And there are a lot of people living their lives, you know, who are just kind of sort of feeling depressed or, you know, who are staying in relationships that make them unhappy or who can't get into relationships because they're unhappy. It, it doesn't threaten them at the level that, you know, my dissatisfaction threatened me through my addiction and and I had a way out. How long have you been uh, sober now? It's been uh, 12 years now. Congrats, man. That's a yeah, long time. I appreciate it. And you yeah, know, sober for me too is I have a glass of wine with my with my wife every so often. It's mm-hmm. it's rare. I don't abuse drugs anymore recreationally. I don't look at pornography. I don't, you know, abuse uh, any type of sort of like sexual acting out. I mean, those are things that um, were really at the core of uh, my addictive behavior. And that's different than a lot of other people who are in recovery who, you know, really like drinking was their thing. But drinking was my slippery slope to, you know, to get into drugs deeper and get into other ways of acting out. It was it was a real outer circle type of behavior. So, but in terms of in engaging in addictive behaviors, substance abuse, uh, or or sexually that that you know that would 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 threaten uh, who I want to be and how I want to be in the world. Yeah, it's been about thirteen years. You know, porn is a weird thing now. I've been watching some stats on um, young men because of the prevalence, obviously, of the internet and porn, et cetera. They're finding all kinds of crazy numbers. Like they're they're not dating the way they used to date. They're you know when they're having sex, it's not you know it's not like sex when we had when we were younger. It's you know the fantasies that they've watched and viewed. Um, their testosterone levels are um, weirdly lower. There's a lot of there's a lot of issues with it, you know, and and you know when it comes to social media, like you mentioned, you know, there's a uh, there's something really interesting to follow. I think you'd enjoy it in your line of work. It's called Influencers in the Wild is the name of the Instagram handle, and it's people who are filming other people 
while they're doing their Instagrams. And you'll watch how contrived and fake the, like what they are willing to do to get that photo so that you have that, you know, that reaction of, oh my God, my life isn't as good as his or hers. I mean, there's a lot of bullshit out there with this stuff. So, you know, I love the fact that you've been down this road and you've been, you know, willing to be vulnerable about it and share it, you know? Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Pornography is, if not the biggest elephant in the room, it's one of the biggest elephants in the room. And when I've alluded to that as part of my, um, addictive patterns in the past, uh, whether I'm speaking on a stage or whether it's been mastermind groups that I'm a part of and I just share my story, I cannot tell you the number of men who come up to me and say, hey, can I have a conversation with you about that because I've been struggling with it too. Like I've never run any uh, empirical study on it, um, but my best guess is more than 50% of men or boys, I would say probably over the age of 12 or 13, are using pornography in an addictive way. And so if you start to look at, I mean, that, that in and of itself, especially abusing pornography at such a young age when the brain is still in its formative years and the nervous system is still in its formative years, intended what we're seeing with the, the, all the various abuses of women in society today, right? And sexual abuse and sexual harassment, in tandem with the breakdown of the family structure and the divorce rates, this pornography thing should really be addressed. In tandem, by the way, with child trafficking and, 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 and mm-hmm. child pornography, right? Because like all addiction, all of it becomes a slippery slope. You don't, you, know, you don't jump on your first website that shows porn and then all of a sudden find yourself you know, looking at child pornography. It happens over the course of a year, but years, but the, the root is really the same. And it doesn't really seem like anyone wants to step up and have this conversation. And, and parents you know, should know that there's a high probability that you know, their their sons are abusing pornography, their daughters are abusing pornography, or their daughters are dating a, a man who's abusing pornography, and that's a really problematic thing. Nobody seems to really be talking about it that much. Yeah, a lot of stigma associated with it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to move into the area of spirituality. Um, you did a you did an interview with uh, uh, Tom Bilyeu, which I thought was truly, truly outstanding. I mean, it was really, really good. For anybody um, that uh, wants to check out a great interview, uh, check out uh, the interview that, uh, that David with, did with uh, Tom Bilyeu. It was fantastic. And I appreciate that. You're welcome. One of the things that, uh, that you talked about in, uh, I don't know if it was, yeah, I think it was in that interview. Uh, you talked about uh, your reading uh, Awaken the Buddha Within. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately got it and I listened to it on audio. And what was interesting for me personally about that book was because I grew up in Queens in New York, you know, he, the author of the book had that sort of like New York Queensy kind of like, you know, way about him. So it was interesting to like, listen to it from, you know, listen to a spiritual book from like every older gentleman that I've ever been around in New York sounded like. I don't know if that makes, you know what I'm talking about? It was really, it was like my neighbor was telling me about, you know, Buddha. It was weird. Um, But, but what was it about that book that triggered all of this for you? Well, the, you know, the, the, the way I found the book was I was at Miami International Airport and I was in the early stages of my drug and alcohol recovery. I was working a 12 step program. I was working with a, a therapist who, God bless her, I mean, this was so amazing. I still work with her today. And she had a background in the addicted brain and neuroscience. And I became curious about all this stuff. So I was starting to pay attention to it. And, and I read Awakening the Buddha Within right before I found Think and Grow Rich. And um, the book just called off to me at the, on the bookshelf. You know, it's like sometimes a book just develops a relationship with you. And I grab the book and I look at the back cover and the back cover said four things. It said, number one, life is full of suffering. And there was just something about that word and the way that it encapsulated all of the different emotions and ways that I had been feeling um, that was so powerful and so simple. And the second statement said, um, the suffering is going to happen to you. And there's so much shame that we feel around the way that we feel. And it's almost like a, a saran wrap that sits on top of all of the emotions that we'd prefer to just let go. Uh, the feelings of not good enough. We feel not good enough for feeling not good enough. We, we feel not good enough because we're depressed. We feel not good enough because we suffer from anxiety. We feel not good enough uh, as we compare ourselves to other people. And then we f- feel guilty about having all of these feelings. And it just becomes this massive stack. 
And that second statement was like, the suffering is going to happen to you. It's just part of life. So there was tremendous relief. And the third statement was, there's a way out of this suffering. And so now I was supremely curious. And the fourth statement was, the way out of the suffering is the Eightfold Path of Virtue. And those are Buddha's eight steps. And what I was reading was the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, because you have the Four Noble Truths and you have the Eightfold Path of Virtue. And it was that um, making the invisible visible. You know, no one was talking to me about suffering uh, until Buddha came along. And no one had uh, helped me understand that really the only cause of my suffering was not the experience that I was having, but the meaning I was giving to the experience. And no one had ever taught me that I actually create the meaning that I'm giving to the experience. And if I'm not conscious of what I'm doing, I'll just give the same meaning I've always given to an experience like that, even though it may not be true. So these were like psychologically groundbreaking principles and philosophies that all of a sudden opened up a whole new possibility uh, for me, um, for my life, uh, for my emotional spectrum. And I was all in. Like I, I really had operated with this lack of awareness that behind it had sort of this unconscious belief that like, this is just the way it is. Because when I looked around, it was the way it is for everybody. <laughs> I mean, every, everybody was comparing themselves to other people. Everybody was feeling like there wasn't enough time. Everybody was reacting angrily to the situations of their life. The vast majority of people were living in financial insecurity, feeling like they weren't going to have enough. So my experience of that seemed to match up with the experience with everyone else. So you think that that's just what experience is supposed to be. And Buddha said, no. No, and you can actually change all of it, not by changing your external circumstances, but by going within and working in your inner world and then through the power of thought and the power of the mind and the power of what we're now talking about in terms of your nervous system and the brain being a goal-achieving machine, you actually transform your external circumstances by going within. Can you give me a more recent example of how you've had to change the meaning of something? Because I would suspect that you know this isn't like a one-and-done thing. This is a work. This is a work in progress. This is something you're constantly doing. You know, where are you falling short? You know, what's the demon that you're battling now where you're, where you're like, no, I got to, I got to re, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not reprogram, but, um, you know, assign something, a reframe. That's the word I'm looking for, where you have to reframe, where you have to reframe something as a new meaning. Yeah. So it's been interesting because I would say for the last couple of years, I had developed a, a, a fairly strong capacity to, manage the meaning I was giving the experiences of my life and to notice that when I was giving a meaning to an experience that didn't serve me well, that didn't feel good, uh, which we believe means that it's not true, and to, and to reorient myself to the various experiences in my life. Um, you know, that might be all of a sudden um, an employee decides they're, they're going to give notice. And, um, and so the first reaction gosh, this is terrible. What am I going to do? I spent so much time training this employee and who's going to fill the spot. And you move into what we would call a primal state. And you realize that you're having this entire reaction that may not be true. Like what's really true is that, you know, someone has decided that there is a better fit for them in their life. And I celebrate that. What's really true is we've got the processes and the procedures in place to train another person. What's really true is I don't want anyone working for our organization who's not fully aligned and excited about being here. And so what I, what I have come to believe philosophically is that every experience we have and, and every moment, life is working in infinitely intelligent, sophisticated ways for our greatest growth, our greatest prosperity, and our greatest evolution. And so I live that way most of the time. And about four years ago, I was diagnosed with what the doctors said were astronomical levels of mercury in my body. It was from an all-fish diet that another very tall motivational speaker said mm -hmm. to go eat fish and stop eating uh, yeah. meat and chicken. And so, you know, two years later, it turned out I had some methylation challenges. I wasn't detoxing mercury like ordinary people might. Uh, and I accumulated a ton of mercury in my system. So for the last three and a half to four years, I've been going through this health journey. And what I, what I realized was that I thought that I shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening to me and that I needed to figure out uh, how to um, eliminate the problem of my health challenges. And, uh, and in that process of believing that it shouldn't be happening to me, that I needed to figure it out, that this was going to somehow impact my ability to do my work, to make an impact in the world, to uh, run my business, I was creating a tremendous amount of anxiety for myself. And as I've 
started to study the systems of the body more and more and more, one of the things I realized as I was speaking to one of my own coaches about this was that 80% of the physical discomfort that I was experiencing around my health challenge was actually the anxiety that I was creating around future potentials or possibilities around my health challenge or believing that my health challenge should be gone by now or believing that my health challenge should never have been happening to me in the first place or asking unproductive questions that lead me into negative states of emotion like why is this happening to me and when is it ever going to end? And so one of the things that I've realized recently and I've been talking about is allowing. I wasn't eating my own dog food. Like if... If I have high levels of mercury in my system, then that is another form of life working for me for my greatest growth, my greatest prosperity, my greatest evolution. And my trying to figure it out was just creating resistance around it because the body is so supremely intelligent, it, it can heal itself. Now, that's not to say that I don't go see practitioners or I don't get on a chelation protocol, but experiencing physical manifestations of my nervous system being in fight or flight was very different than experiencing fight or flight as a result of my limiting beliefs and my fears. Like my mind was pretty clear, but my body was moving into fight or flight. And so then I would give a meaning to those experiences. And it was the meaning I was giving to those experiences that was putting me into tension, that was putting me into stress, that was putting me into fight or flight. So a big part of the progress that I've made over the last six months in my healing has actually been to just surrender to the experience and to not try to understand what's going on, to not need to fix it, and to focus first and foremost into being in a mode of relaxation. This is interesting. You're, you're triggering a couple of things for me. One is The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Have you read that? Great book. It sounds like you're kind of like walking down that path. Did I get that right? Yeah, and, I've been, and we've been talking about it as allowing. And like, if I can just just share to, 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 to maybe make the point even a little bit more uh, clear, especially if you're an entrepreneur, but every human being, if we have a vision for our life, we start to devise a plan for that vision, a plan to make more money, a plan to grow our business. There are certain things we feel we need to get done on a day-to-day -day basis. And what we believe behind all of that is if we can just get the things done that we think we need to get done on a day-to-day -day basis, then we will be okay. We will have what we want. And so we create these plans. Again, the perfect example is an entrepreneur or a business owner, right? You're trying to grow your podcast followers. Maybe you want a book deal. Maybe you want to do a licensing deal. And you start to put together a plan. But then life shows up in ways that you don't expect. And oftentimes life shows up in ways that seem like they're counterpositioned to what we're trying to produce as an outcome. They actually interrupt the plan. And one of the things that I've been testing for myself empirically, meaning through my own experience, is what if this thing that just showed up is actually the plan and that my plan wasn't the plan? Mm -hmm. How would I be with this thing that just showed up differently if I was 100% sure that this was not a roadblock, but it was the road. How much more present would I be for this thing if I wasn't trying to get it out of the way so I could get back to my plan? And I think plans are important, but I sort of believe that you cast your plan and you start moving towards it. And then whatever you want to call it, universe, intelligence, creation, God, the force says, oh, got it. That's what Rob wants to create. Well, let me get working on the direct path there because he doesn't know what it is. It's just working on his own plan. And then the direct path shows up and we develop an adversarial relationship to it. I had a woman say, you know, I'm trying to build my business from home. And during COVID, I'm home. My kids are home. My daughter keeps coming in and interrupting me while I'm trying to get my work done. And I'm trying to figure out what I can do to resolve that. And we see just in her description of my daughter is coming in to interrupt me. Your daughter's not coming in to interrupt you. Your daughter's coming in to connect with you. But the meaning that you're giving the experience is that my daughter coming in to connect with me is interrupting my plan and I got to get back to my plan. Well, what if the plan was what showed up in the moment? What if the plan was to connect deeply with your child in that moment? And then to get back to whatever else you were working on. What if you could just surrender to the present moment and trust that because it is happening, that is what is supposed to be happening and you be with it, with intelligence and with presence 
and with compassion. And I said, the irony is, you know why your daughter keeps coming into the room to interrupt you? Because you've never once been present for her. And we see that with our own lives. We're not present with the thing that shows up. We think the thing that shows up is a problem in interrupting our great plans, when in fact it is the great plan. And, and then we fragment ourselves. We're trying to deal with it over here on the left-hand side while we've got one foot over here thinking we should be working on what's on the right-hand side. We're splitting our consciousness. Our energy becomes fragmented and we never really complete anything. And so since you don't complete that thing that life just delivered to you, it keeps showing up over and over and over again. So when my computer broke the other day, I went, well, this is exactly what's supposed to be happening. And I was with that experience completely different. So I think that, yes, surrendering to the present moment, allowing is really the key to get out of this kind of hustle and grind. I got to get my plan done. It's the way that you're able to leverage timing because you can work with this corresponding plan that's unfolding and you could never outwork timing, right? There's never enough time to outwork timing. Timing is the thing that we really want. Mm -hmm. And that is achieved by being present to whatever is showing up in the present moment. And that's what great leaders do, right? Great leaders don't have great plans. You ever been around somebody who's got, who's a great, like just greatness, they exude greatness. Mm -hmm. It's a presence, right? Yeah. That presence is present. It's presence. And there's so much power to it. And again, going back to what we talked about before with all of these distractions and social media and COVID shouldn't be happening and I should be able to get back to work and how long do I have to stay at home and all. We're just not there for the miracle that is showing up moment by moment by moment. And if we were present for that, man, we would have to work such less to achieve such greater things in our lives. So interesting. So I guess then the question becomes, why are we fighting that? Because we have a preconceived notion, because we're arrogant. That would be the way to describe it simply. Mm-hmm. Human beings are arrogant and we lack faith. And so we think it's actually up to us. And I'm not saying that we don't need to take action, but you take action from aligned psychology and emotion. Action will normally follow. Anybody who's in procrastination is because of a misaligned psychology and emotional set. Right? They believe they're not good enough, so they move into procrastination. Once we clean that up, action uh, naturally follows. But it's an arrogance. And it's a misunderstanding that of, of the metaphysics of life. You know, Most people aren't metaphysicians. We're looking at the effect of the world. We're not looking at the cause of it. And if we could really understand that the mind is everything what you think you become, which is what Buddha said and what Gandhi said and essentially what Ford said and you know every great thinker really ever said, then we would stop trying to deal with the movie screen of life and we'd just go back and get behind the projector and make the adjustments. But we're, we're ignorant and we're arrogant and we lack faith. And that's not a criticism. It's where humanity is right now, which is why we see so many problems in the world. And it's why I've also suggested that this sort of next evolution of personal growth really understanding these philosophies and then learning how to use the mind to rewire and reorganize your brain and your nervous system is, I believe, the linchpin of the evolution of the species. So the universe is trying to conspire, um, to use a a Rumi quote, to conspire for our benefit, right? For our will or whatever that Rumi quote is, right? Um, But we fight it because we think we know better. We're We're a bit arrogant in that regard. You know, I'm wondering, I'm thinking about something. A lot of the interviews I've done recently, we've talked a lot about anxiety, panic attacks um, during this COVID crisis. And I'm wondering out loud here how much of that newfound anxiety and, you know, calls to the 211, uh, which is the mental health suicide hotline, are up something like you know, 3,000% during this period. It's unprecedented. They can't even stock the, staff the phone lines. I'm wondering if it's because so much of us are just fighting what is and not willing to allow and surrender to it. What do you think about that? 100%. Your, your nervous system can only bear so much load of your unintelligence. Uh, unpack that for me. So when we believe that whatever's happening in the present moment is not for our greatest growth or greatest prosperity or our greatest evolution. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that if you're confronted with a violent crime that you don't run. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that if you're in an abusive relationship, you don't set boundaries or get out of there. But that's not what we're talking about in 99.9% of these examples. So let's just not throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's a separate conversation, but let's just look at the fact that most of us sitting down at a restaurant will open up the menu and want to order one thing, but think that we shouldn't order that thing and we should order another thing. And we move into a debate in our mind that moves our nervous system into sympathetic fight or flight. Yep. Okay. So as long as, long as, as humanity, we can, we can recognize that that's the extent of what's happening. Then, then what, we're, what we suggest, and I talked about this in the interview with Tom Bilyeu, is that you've got this nervous system, which is your emotional guide for indicating to you when you've moved into a misperception of the present moment. What, what we teach is that there are two states of emotional being. There are primal states which are fight or flight or freeze states, stress, anxiety, overwhelm, jealousy, comparing yourself to other people, indecision, primal states, which are reactions as information are filtered through the limbic system and the amygdala and move you into fight or flight, the the old reptilian mammalian parts of the brain. And there are powerful states. Powerful states are states like joy, curiosity, excitement, passion, uh, creativity happens in a powerful state. You're always in a primal state or you're in a powerful state. You're never in both states at the same time and you're never stateless. So no matter, you're always in an emotion and it falls into those two categories. What we found is that when you move into a primal state, let's just say stress or anxiety, it's a result of what we would call unintelligent thinking. You're giving a meaning to an experience that is not really what the experience is. And as a result of you entangling yourself with that thinking, that's not in alignment with kind of the resonance of reality itself, your nervous system moves into dissonance and you feel like crap. Mm-hmm. So many people are at home right now having all kinds of unintelligent thoughts as a result of COVID. That this is pro- a problem this way, that I'm not going to be able to get through this. Or they're in isolation, and so they're just circulating in all of the unintelligent thinking that what they were habituating themselves to before. Right? There's nowhere to go now. There's no distractions. So they're thinking, I'm not good enough even more. They're thinking it's never going to work out for me even more. They're thinking other people have it better than me even more. And they're on social media even more. And so as you're doing that, you're putting a dissonant load on your nervous system. Every time you think something that's not true, your nervous system is reflecting that throughout your entire body. Over time, that puts a load on the system. Creates inflammation within the body, causes gut problems, creates things like tachycardia and irregular heart rate. Right? Your body's doing its best to figure out what to do with all of this dissonant information and dissonant energy, but there's only so many places it can store it. And then you stack that with not exercising, which is a great way to release dissonant information, or you're not in a meditative practice or doing things like Tai Chi that take the load off the system, you're going to have tremendous number of people experiencing a tremendous amount of suffering right now. So the, the two states, I want to make sure I got it, are primal and powerful. And powerful. Okay. And, is, and they're both a part of the parasympathetic nervous system, right? One is uh, fight or flight and the other one's like rest and digest. Do they yeah, get that powerful right? is the parasympathetic expression of the nervous system and primal states are the uh, sympathetic expression of the nervous system. So yes, fight or flight is, par- is sympathetic. And rest and digest, or we would say like rest and connect, because that's where your intuition, your creativity, and your connection to power and spirit is, is in a powerful state of being, parasympathetic. Okay, so give me an example uh, for somebody right now that is in a situation where they're feeling stress, anxiety. What process should they walk through in their minds? Like, is there a, you know, do this first, do that second, do that third? You know, ask yourself, am I in a primal state? Am I in a powerful state? How do you recommend people who are feeling anxiety and stress and pressure either in during COVID now or just in life? Yeah, so I'll give you the process and then I'll give an example of a story of the process. It's also mm-hmm. important to understand that if you've habituated your nervous system to the extent that you're feeling anxious frequently, it's going to take some time where you may still feel anxiety even though you're not putting more load on the system. Okay. So we're not looking to immediately calm down. We're looking to change our thinking over time so that we can change our nervous system over time. Okay. And that's why healing is a healing journey. It's not a quick fix because it wasn't a quick fix putting you into this constant state of anxiety either, right? Yep. 
It's, it happened over time. But the, the structure of it is there are only two states of being, powerful states and primal states. And you're not a bad person for being in a primal state. You're just connecting with thoughts that are untrue. And because rarely should we be in sympathetic in today's modern world. And so um, you're always in one state or the other, never in two states at the same time. And the only cause of you being in a powerful state or a primal state is your thinking. It's the meaning that you're giving the experience of your life. In other words, experiences don't have meanings inherent in them. They're kind of like the black and white coloring book. Mm-hmm. But the meaning that you give the experience then determines your emotional response and whether you're in a powerful state or a primal state. And when we notice that we've moved into a primal state, we know the only cause of it is our own thinking. And one of the things that we've identified is that 100% of the time, the quality of the thinking is that it's not true. And so then you're able to go, okay, got it. So if that's not true, even though it seems true to me, and even though I can find a bunch of evidence from my history because... I've been believing this for so long. That's all I've really noticed throughout most of my life. And it's reinforced itself over and over and over again. So it seems true to me. But I'm, I'm buying into the philosophy. If it's not true, then what must be true is some form of the opposite. We'd established what the form of the opposite is. And we'd go, well, what evidence do I have for the fact that that's true? I'll give you an example. Sometimes the examples aren't this dramatic, but this was a particularly powerful breakthrough for a client that I privately coached, he called me on a Saturday. He said, hey, can you talk? I wasn't able to get out of a primal state last night. I could use your support. I said, great, tell me what happened. He said, well, I was I was in Miami. He was one of the super successful young entrepreneur. He was invited out to sort of an intimate get-together with a bunch of other movers and shakers, top real estate agent in Miami, vice president of the sports team in Miami, number one DJ in Miami, fashion designer in Miami. So they're all at this like cocktail party that he was invited to. And he notices he starts to feel uncomfortable. He starts to move into a primal state and he takes a look at his thinking. And what he saw was, I don't belong here. And I said, okay, got it. So you saw, I don't belong here. That's what you were thinking that was causing you to move into your anxiety. He said, yeah. I said, well, what'd you do next? He said, well, I know what you teach, that if I don't belong here, moves me into a primal state, then it's not true. I said, okay. And he said, yeah, so some form of the opposite must be true. And I said, so what was that for you? And he said, that I do belong here. I said, okay, good work so far. So uh, I said, then what did you do? He goes, well, that's where I got stuck. Because every time I said to myself, well, what evidence do I have for the fact that I do belong here? I kept saying, well, I don't have any evidence because that guy's more successful in this way and that woman's more successful in another way. And I just lucked out with my business successes. So I just kept looping and I was stuck in a primal state. For him, it was anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I coached him on it. And I knew his background. I knew his leverage points. It doesn't always have to be the leverage point that I'm using right now, but I think it still makes a great example. I said, okay, got it. So let me ask you a question. Here you were Friday night. You were invited to this cocktail party. You feel like you don't belong there. You know that it's untrue, but you couldn't actually see that it was untrue. So you weren't able to have a breakthrough. You were stuck in the primal state. I said, let me ask you a question. He was a a Muslim Egyptian. I said, do you believe in God? He said, I do. I said, no, I I don't know. Is your God the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing God? He says, yeah, it, it is. And I said, got it. So how did your God put you in a place where you don't belong last night? And there was this pause on the other end of the line. And then I heard him go, oh my God. And I said, what is it? What did you see? And he said, I believe I belong everywhere I am. He goes, it doesn't make sense that I wouldn't belong somewhere. Why would I be somewhere if I didn't belong somewhere? Of course I belong there. And so that is what we would call radical transformation. That's not coming up with another story. That's not me trying to juice him up and make him feel good about all the accomplishments that he's had so we could put him on the same level or same pedestal as everybody else at the cocktail party. That's a fundamental reorientation to his own reality where he realizes that this concept of not belonging makes no sense whatsoever, ever, under any circumstance. I belong because I am. So he was able to have this incredible revelation. Once we were able to see, take a real deep look at this concept of I don't belong, and he could see that it was unintelligent and made no sense, essentially the concept dissolves and what's left is a revelation. I belong everywhere I am. And so... Um, The process 
is to buy into the idea that you should feel good. And that anytime you don't feel good, I don't mean sick or unhealthy, I mean emotionally, that anytime you don't feel good, the only thing that's causing you to not feel good is your own thinking. And that the quality of that thinking is that it's not true. That's why it makes you feel not good. And if it's not true, then some form of the opposite must be true. And we have evidence in our lives to support what's actually true. It's just that we've enrolled ourselves in the unreality for so long, probably since we were five or six years old when someone else gave us that belief, that we've been stuck in it. Got it. So the idea then is to get yourself as quickly as you can out of the primal state into a powerful state, but getting the leverage points on yourself in any way that you need to, but just ultimately get yourself out of it so that you're into a powerful state where you can actually allow the universe to work for you. Yes, and. Yes, and. There are a lot of ways to move from a primal state to a powerful state. Some teachers teach manager physiology and get up and jump up and down, and you can do that. But then what happens is over time, your, your thought processes, literally the neural networks of your brain and your nervous system patterning have become addicted and habituated. So you're going to move back into the old pattern of thinking. So what we want to do is we want to help you see what the specific thinking is. And then we want to help you see as quickly as possible that the thinking makes no sense. If we can help you see something that you thought has been true for a long, long time is untrue, that's the fastest way to create a permanent breakthrough. I love that. And in the uh, the PDF on your website, is that covered in that PDF? It is, yeah. We have the, the Mind Hack ebook uh, okay. that's, that's available for people to download that really just takes you into sort of this introductory concept around the methodology that we teach. But it's, it, it, it goes deep for a lot of people, but the work goes much deeper as well. I mean, you're talking about a whole you know, philosophy of metaphysical truths that you know, as you mentioned before, are now sort of intersecting with neuroscience and wisdom teachings and spirituality. And if you can put all of those pieces together, then you can really have a powerful living experience. Going out on a woo-woo limb here for a second, have you heard of uh, Esther Hicks? And if yes, what's your thoughts? Uh, I, I love Abraham. So, you, you know, Abraham. Esther is a woman who gets into a relaxed meditative state and is able to tune in almost like we tune into radio frequencies to a frequency of information, which is known as Abraham. And Abraham uh, talks about uh, some of the medical, physical, metaphysical principles that we're talking about here. And I love Abe. A Abraham Hicks was a, a big part of my recovery journey because when my own thinking uh, was not intelligent enough <laughs> to support me in moving forward in my recovery, for 15 to 20 minutes a day, I would just plug in my earbuds and listen to someone else's thinking. I'd listen to Les Brown. I'd listen to Abraham Hicks. And I think when you look at teachings that are out there, Abraham Hicks is you know, on the leading edge of this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, she, she's always talking about finding a way to feel good. And it just really made me think of what you're teaching as well. Okay, in our uh, remaining time, I want to switch gears a little bit. The show is called Work Hard, Play Hard because we cover work and play. So I want to talk to you a little bit about you personally and maybe some, some out there questions. So just kind of roll with it. The first question I have is, what do people often get wrong about you or your work? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, gosh, I've never shared this. There are some people who feel that there's an unoriginality to the work. Mm -hmm. And it has been a challenge early on, especially when when I, you know, was dealing with my own comparing and my own vision for what I wanted to create and my own insecurities to hear that I was being compared to somebody else or that I was a copycat or that I was unoriginal. Mm -hmm. And I know how easy it is. Like that's what the that's what we do. We 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 operate in uh, an analogy. Like this is always like that. It's the way the brain works. And I do think that in any area of expertise, we're building on the shoulders of the people who came before us. But I think that's, that's a common misconception is that there isn't like real true uh, distinction and beauty. And not, it's not a common misperception, but it's out there. And maybe the thing about me is that um, I'm arrogant. And, and maybe there are times, I'm sure there are times where I am arrogant, but I'm really passionate. Like I'm really passionate about what's possible for people. I have, a, I have an, an irritable intolerance for the unintelligence that's been passed on from generation to generation that's invisible, that infects us, that prevents us from achieving what we want to achieve. 
and is so cunning, baffling, and powerful that we'll actually defend it <laughs> to other people. Yeah, and I so it. sometimes right. I think that passion could come off as as being a little too arrogant about things. Yep, I get it. What is the one rule that you have for yourself that you'll never break? Um, well, I'm tremendously loyal. So, I mean, I'd never cheat on my wife. That's mm-hmm. an easy one. Okay. What's an unusual or an absurd thing that you love? I love comfort. Mm-hmm. I love comfort. And sometimes it can borderline on an absurd when I'm walking around the house with a blanket wrapped around me at three o'clock. Okay, there we go. I, I, I didn't think there was a full stop there. I knew that there was a blankie or something wrapped around you. I, okay. I was thinking about when my <laughs> wife is like, you just, you're so ridiculously into comfort. And I was like, well, shouldn't everyone be? <laughs> I'm going to send you a Snuggie. Thank um, you. What is the one goal that you thought when you achieved it everything is going to be great. Like if I just got this thing and then you got it and you were like, that didn't do it. It was my first, my first big event that I did, the Powerful Living Experience Live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had this idea that all of the anxiety and, and, and insecurities that were really coming up because I, I mean, I'd never done any event, let alone an event in front of 350 people that I ran for three days. I, I think I, I felt like after that event, like I'd never be nervous again. <laughs> it just wasn't true. <laughs> then you go. Then, you, then then you go on. You know, impact theory in in front of you know millions of people, and you're like, oh, there's a new level. I, I'm I'm already thinking about the day I'm on live TV and how different that'll be. It's amazing. You know, I had the pleasure of going out to dinner with him here in LA uh, one night with some friends. What a great guy. Yeah, good and, guy. It was just, but for me, it was the exposure of the platform. Like you, you know, if you're on there, that like a half million people are going to see your face in the next ninety days. I had never oh, been yeah. exposed to anything like that. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah, that, there's, that was a great platform for you. You did a great job. I appreciate it. <clears throat> sure. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Uh, I'd go back to Italy and uh, rent a villa in Tuscany uh, mm-hmm. because I love the Italian people. And uh, it's just got such great energy and vibe there. And yeah, I can, I just, I'm able to completely unwind. If you can go to one restaurant before you die... Where would your last meal be? I'd go back to Bologna to Osteria. I thought Canale. you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The same place where I, I called them my Italian parents. They took me to the doctor when I was sick. I'd go back to that same restaurant. That's awesome. Okay. Last question. We're going to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? You know, in this conversation that we've had today, what's, what's something that you, you still feel challenged by around your own belief systems? By nature, I'm the kind of guy that really wants to fully embrace and understand everything, like every word that came out of your mouth. I'll go back and listen to this, journal it, think about it, create a system for it, and make the attempt to put it into action. So I would say the thing that's on my mind is to make sure <laughs> that I don't fuck it up, you know, <laughs> that I get it right, that I heard you the right way, that I know, you know, which one is, that's why I asked if it's in the PDF, which one is the, you know, the parasympathetic, which one's the sympathetic and how do I know when I'm in it and how do I know that I'm doing it right? So it would be more like, not anxiety, that's too strong a word. It would be more, I think a concern is a better word to make sure that that I respect the time, effort, and energy that you put into this to make sure that I got it right and I deployed it the way you intended it to be deployed. Mm. Got it. I appreciate that insight. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, listen, this was one of my favorite interviews. Really, really good. Um, There's so much here. There's so much that can be, uh, so much tactical information that can be used. So do you have any final suggestions or an ask for people that are listening? Yeah, I think that the, the beginning of establishing peace for yourself just starts with an ask, right? Asking for whatever it is that you want, deciding that you want to have more peace, that you want to have more joy, that you want to have more financial abundance, you know, there's there. Of course, there's the old scriptural adage, right? Of asking, you shall receive. But I'm always amazed at how many people want something, but they're somehow afraid to just ask for it or to declare that they want it. And so that's my encouragement for people. If there are areas of your life where you want to expand, or areas of your life where you have a problem and you'd like a solution to show up, 
um, you know, write it down, get, get real clear in just expressing that that's your desire. I think in a lot of ways we become desire neutered and none of this, you know, no, no change can happen in your, in your own life in any area of it without, without the desire for it. And it's okay to want. I love that. Well, David, thanks again for taking the time. Best of luck uh, on your recently new marriage with Carol. Yeah, uh, Rob, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It looks uh, it looks like you found uh, your soulmate there. So uh, blessings from uh, from California. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you, brother. Really an honor. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. <laughs>